This is episode number 38 with Mark Echo. Welcome to the School of Greatness. My name is Lewis Howes, a former pro athlete turned lifestyle entrepreneur. And each week we bring you an inspiring person or message to help you discover how to unlock your inner greatness. Thanks for spending some time with me today. Now let the class begin. up greats thanks so much for tuning in today and let me start off with the quote of the day and it's by steve maraboli and he says those who have the ability to be grateful are the ones who have the ability to achieve greatness and i loved seeing this quote because i've been talking a lot about gratitude lately with a number of my guests and it just seems like it's a great theme gratitude. The more grateful you are, the easier it is to achieve greatness. So hopefully you guys are expressing gratitude in everything that you're doing throughout your day, your week, month, and all of your life. Gratitude for me is something I live by, I breathe by, I think about constantly, I'm constantly expressing. And I find when I'm ever in a bad mood that I turn to gratitude and it always seems to get me out into a better mood at least. Maybe I'm never fully back to myself, but at least it gets me out of my, my own way and has me start thinking about other things besides what crap I'm going through that day. So those who have the ability to be grateful are the ones who have the ability to achieve greatness. Hope you guys enjoyed that one for today. We've got a big, big, big show. It's with Mark Echo. And for those who don't know who Mark Echo is, he is an American fashion designer, entrepreneur, investor, artist, and philanthropist, and he is the founder of Mark Echo Enterprises, which is a billion-dollar global fashion and lifestyle company. Yes, a billion-dollar company. He's the man. He's extremely creative, and he's got a book out. The book is called Unlabel, Selling You Without Selling Out. And I think that's awesome, especially with the whole online marketing, social media world, what everyone's doing about personal branding. It's all about selling yourself without selling out. And I think it's really cool what we go over today. I'm very excited to share with you this interview. Um, You're going to talk about how to discover your unique voice and what that is. And in order to take action, one must overcome fear. We talk about what fear is and how to overcome fear, what Mark talks about overcoming fear. Mark also talks about some of his powerful mentors and how some mentors in your life may not be exactly who you think they're going to be, but might just be someone you weren't even thinking about. Mark also talks about how to discover your weaknesses and your unfair advantages, and then your infinite truth in what that actually means. And also all about living your authentic life. So I'm very excited to be tapping into Mark's wisdom throughout this episode. And make sure to check out the book. He's going to talk about the book a little bit as well. Again, it's called Unlabel, Selling You Without Selling Out. With that, guys, I'm super pumped about this episode. Mark Echo is a huge icon. And I'm very excited to introduce you to him. But in the meantime, I've got something I want to share with you guys at the very end of this episode. Make sure to tune all the way into the end because I've got a very special program I'm coming out with that's all about supporting entrepreneurs to making more money and living their ultimate lifestyle. Again, it's something I'm coming out with really recently. 
It's going to be coming out soon. And I want to share more with you at the very end. So stay tuned to the very end of this episode. I want to talk a little bit about that. And in the meantime, get ready and step up and let the class begin. I don't know about you, but when around 3 p.m. hits, I find myself craving the right refreshment to get me through that mid-afternoon slump. New Pure Leaf Zero Sugar Sweet Iced Tea is full-flavored sweet tea, but without the sugar and the calories. It might take several bottles for you to believe that a delicious sweet tea can really have zero sugar and zero calories. But you know what they say, life is full of surprises. Or in this case, full of flavor. New Pure Leaf Zero Sugar Sweet Iced Tea. Try it to believe it. For 20% off your next 12 pack head to amazon and use promo code 20 pure leaf that's promo code 20 p-u-r-e-l-e-a-f for 20 percent off We've all been there. You have a question about your credit card. You call the number for help and can't get a hold of anyone if you only had a Discover card. With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. A real person. Get the customer service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Whether you're searching for a home to buy or you're just obsessed with looking at homes for sale, Redfin's got you covered. You can favorite homes, share listings with others, and even schedule tours with a local Redfin agent, all in the app. And when you're ready to buy, an experienced local Redfin agent can guide you through the whole process. They know how to help you win the right home at the right price. So download the Redfin app to get started today. Now it's time to bring in, bring in, bring in, bring in. The master. Welcome back, everyone, to the School of Greatness. Thanks for tuning in today. Super pumped about this interview because I got Mark Echo, who is calling in. How's it going, Mark? What's up, Lewis? Good to speak with you. Uh, we met uh, a couple months back at Mastermind Talks where you were giving a keynote. I was speaking as well and uh, got to connect briefly, but I'm, I'm glad we got to reconnect through our mutual friend Ryan Holiday. So yes. I really appreciate it. And your new book, Unlabel, Selling You Without Selling Out, just came out. And uh, one of the most beautifully designed books, I have to say. Well, and thank you. and I, I guess that makes sense because you're a designer. I mean, there are, uh, I, I knew in positioning the book as a product that there's a cohort of readers um, that are maybe on the younger side or mm. or their default position is to buy digital. And I wanted to make the print product, you know, uh, like the ultimate in the value proposition because mm. I really felt like that would kind of be the real experience, especially um, as I kind of took almost a, a school biology or anatomy, anatomy book kind of low out, layout rather. Right. And I think you lose some of that context without physically touching it. So the design was indeed a big part of making it right. But I wanted to do it in a way where we didn't um, dilute or uh, make it, um, uh, you know, dilute the text and make it a coffee table book. It's not a coffee right. table book, you know, in that regard. No, the text is amazing still. It's not, it's not just like a visual image book where you're flipping through, but the you know, you've got some great writing as well. Well, cheers, man. Thank you. I appreciate it. And uh, I kind of want to just dive in and, and b briefly 
let you share your your background. Uh, I think a lot of people know about the brand you've built, the billion dollar brand you've built, but maybe give like a 30, 60 second background of your story um, of how you kind of all got started. Oh, I mean, it's kind of, um, you know, uh, the kind of classic made in America story. Um, you know, I, I am very lucky in life uh, in two very material accounts. One, I'm a twin. I have a twin sister, uh, Marcy. And uh, my mother, who was carrying us as twins, um, didn't know that she was going to give birth to twins. You know, it was 1972, and I guess uh, access to, um, you know, whatever uh, tests, and uh, um, they, they missed it. So when she complained of, like, kicking in her breast and then kicking in the lower part of her stomach, uh, the doctor was like, oh, it's just an echo in the fluid. So, you know, that me coming second and being the echo to my twin Marcy probably is, is one of the most material things that in, in, in my story that's more of just the luck of, you know, God and right place, right time, right DNA and the right strand and the right sequence. So having a twin uh, has shaped me and she's been the best advisor and kind of um, consigliare that, you know, I could have ever wished for or bought, you know, so that, that's one. The other, uh, very material thing that kind of, um, from an environment point of view that shaped me was, um, being a white Jewish kid growing up <laughs> in a very, you know, ethnically diverse, you know, town in Lakewood, New Jersey. I mean, Lakewood, New Jersey is kind of like the, a, fa a fascinating kind of anomaly. It still is to this day. It's one of the largest like Lubavitcher Orthodox Jewish populations, you know, outside of like Muncie, Brooklyn. Um, and there it is two hours out of Manhattan in, uh, you know, 15, 20 minutes from the Jersey shore surrounded by largely, you know, um, uh, at least in the 80s, white uh, suburb, suburban towns. And then here was this town where you had a big population of black and Latino folks that really used the public schools and the public systems. And then there was this massive voting block that was very privately organized with like this Orthodox Jewish population. So it's a really kind of strange place, you know, and strange mm -hmm. and beautiful and kind of only in America kind of a place. <laughs> right. You know? um, and then making it that much more kind of dynamic was the backdrop of the 80s and the, and the emergence of hip-hop culture, you know, pre, you know, the, the virus that was MTV and kind of the, the disintermediation of media. So, you know, hip-hop was something you had to seek, you know, like you had to really mm. seek it out. And if I wasn't in my environment there, I might not have been exposed to kind of the culture and the hustle and the kind of dynamism that is hip hop. So, you know, those two things are really material in shaping my background. Um, and then you blend those things with like a passion for art. Suddenly that nickname Echo becomes really useful because now like that's a handy graffiti tag name. Right. Right. Uh, so that became real handy. Uh, and then, you know, the, you know, the elements of, you know, um, hip hop, you know, they say like b-boying, DJing, rhyming and graffiti, 
well, you know, I was too fat, you know, uh, to break dance. Too white. Too, too, you know, I know plenty of white boys that try to rhyme, but it was a little early on the (laughs) of like white MCs, but there were, uh, they existed. Um, And then uh, I was too uh, not coordinated to DJ, you know, uh, and, but I was artistic. So graffiti was a way of framing the fact that I was just an expressive emo kid. And suddenly I was able to kind of engage in what I kind of, I think of as the extreme sport of art, you know, the extreme sport of (laughs) graffiti, because all that macho other shit that guys get to do football, you know, if it was skating, BMXing, suddenly art had this kind of physical, physical, uh, edge and, um, would allow me to be maybe more macho, you know, rather than kind of like the emo arty kid, who's, you know, doing landscapes with charcoals or whatever. (laughs) You were like the ultimate ninja warrior of street art. Yeah, except, you know, in Lakewood, it's not like there were sky, you know, high buildings where you could really get up and there were no, you know, it wasn't like the N or the R train was running. It was like a freight line that cut north and south Route 9. And so like if you, if, if ninja means, you know, you know, escapating about <laughs> shop, right. You know, or like the skating rink. Yeah. I presume, <laughs> I guess you could say I was a ninja. You were the parkour I was uh, like of the, street art. Yeah, yeah. Like, like it's like Nacho Libre was in the parkour. <laughs> I was, I was that. If you could visualize that, that, that was me. With the like, stretchy like, pants. Yeah. So that was the vibe. I love it, man. Well, when did you, when did you really discover that you had this talent, this gift of, I guess graffiti. Well, I don't know that I ever viewed it as like a gift for graffiti per se, because as graffiti artists go, I think I was pretty much a toy and pretty average to below average. Um, but what I what I did have a knack for was just generally illustration. I think that's a more precise description of my skill uh, and, and being able to kind of. Uh, expressed through illustration and i had that inkling at a pretty young age my grandmother made a fuss you know uh over any time that i would try to copy the pages of a comic book um so that feedback uh and that currency of um you know positive affirmation Mm. (laughs) from family was there at a pretty young age i think i i realized that i had a intuitive sense for marketing in middle school years when I ran for like class president and blended my understanding for like the kind of cultural, you know, like the the kind of cool factor that was my art coupled with this pursuit of wanting to kind of get up, like, which is the spirit of really graffiti is like, you know, making something from nothing and trying to create awareness for you. It's a pretty selfish and pretty indulgent actually pursuit, right? Right. It's kind of like beating your chest and, you know, it has that whole element. So I kind of took the zig route and was like, okay, I could blend graffiti and class president. So, cause my flyers would be so much more fly, no pun intended or pun intended than, than my, you know, the, the, the kids I was running against, I would just crush them in terms of marketing. <laughs> so my marketing savvy was there. And that need to kind of create a call to action and create a transaction, which in that instance was a vote, 
is when I kind of saw the power of blending my art with marketing, wanting to use my art to achieve yet another goal beyond just like, you know, the art on paper and the art as an object, you know, that you just hang up or you, you know, you just admire. Um, there was more of an intent to kind of tie it to a transaction. So that uh, I think in, I, I couldn't articulate it in that way at 13 or 14, you know, I would just tell you how fresh it was and vote for me. Um, you just wanted to make cool stuff. Yeah, it was uh, reflecting on it. I, I do think that the, those were pretty material lessons subconsciously. So how did Mark Echo come about, the business, the t-shirt business, and now the brand, the huge brand you have today? Well, it really started, you know, come that eighth, you know, kind of simultaneously with me just making flyers and posters for running for president. I also had an air compressor and airbrush back home in the garage. And I was kind of honing those those skills, you know, wax on, wax off. Come high school, I used my ability, my, my kind of ends with student government to be able to set up um, a folding table and sell airbrush T-shirts right there in school and kind of create this unfair advantage in marketing that service. You know, I did it all in the name of, quote, fundraising. But that kind of set the table for what I did as a service and, you know, Outside of Lakewood and, you know, in Ocean County, there, you know, I was probably one of two or three people that were doing that in a meaningful way. Um, I was emulating these guys called the Shirt Kings out of Jamaica, Queens, who I talk about in the book. And, and the fact that they were like airbrushing sweatshirts for like celebrities and rappers at the time. So that really served to position Echo Airbrushing. So those, those you know, four years of high school and first couple of years of college was where I was really turning it into a trade. Come 1993, when I, you know, I realized I'm like a below average student at pharmacy, <laughs> you know, and, and more importantly, that I knew that it just made me feel, it made me feel below average. Forget the, you know, the evidence in the testing, you know, that the, the, forget that for a second in terms of my ability to comply to a testing standard. It just... The notion of, you know, standing on my feet counting pills made me feel lesser about myself. And the notion of doing something with my art, albeit like I had no promise. I wasn't clairvoyant or you know, there was no, nothing promised that I'd be able to parlay that into business. So that notion, though, of the art was like, you know, it gave me the goosies. You know, I got it it was positive. It felt better. It made me feel better. So I, I took that leap of faith in 1993 and I left pharmacy school. I dropped out and um, I started the business with my sister, Marcy, and a guy named Seth Gertzberg was my former partner. Uh, and really, literally a $5,000, you know, bag of cash, you know, and a dirty paper bag. <laughs> you know, Seth was the brute force. Marcy was the governance. I was like the the swagger, like the emotional kind of brand part of the conversation. Seth was the relentless commercialization guy. Marcy was kind of the mama son, took care of production, uh, coordinating early, you know, sales with Seth. Uh, I managed all the design, marketing, relationships, and you know, we just we grew it. You know, we just grew it. You know, from Six T-shirts 
uh, and just kept the snowball going. And, you know, talk about it in the book. And it was not pretty. It was not uh, instant. The Rhino uh, logo was not present at launch. You know, that was an iterative part of the, the journey. Um, and through it, we managed to beg, borrow, steal, get on the bleeding edge of, of potentially a BK and like losing it all, it, you know, in, in more than one instance over the years. Um, and we built it into a, you know, a pretty big, sophisticated, um, you know, business. But it was a, a really entirely iterative thing. You know, we didn't come from uh, family money. We, there were no insiders, there were no, um, you know, best practices to glean from like uncle whomever or, you know, cousin Joe or whatever. So it was a lot of just, you know, um, learn by doing, uh, and a tremendous amount of, uh, failure, uh, and a, you know, kind of unrelenting, almost masochistic observation as to why we were failing, you know, and, you know, mixed with a little bit of mania that, you know, reflecting on it now, the sum of that naiveness is what helped position us uniquely, but it also created, you know, also always had us dangerously on the edge of um, losing it all. Right. One of my favorite parts about my job is that I get the opportunity to travel a lot. And in fact, I'm recording this right now while I'm in Mexico. And actually, I was thinking about something that I wanted to share because I get a lot of questions from so many people about different side hustle ideas. So here's one for those of you out there that are on the go a lot like I am or traveling a lot. When you're staying in your Airbnb on your trips, have you ever thought about how you could be making extra money by hosting through Airbnb while your home is vacant? If you're interested in an extra stream of income, Airbnb hosting is an easy place to start and it's like giving your home some company while you're away. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. So listen, we all know life is full of yada yada, like those quote unquote free trials that somehow still charge your card for something or when companies have those sneaky gotchas hiding deep in the fine print. And I know you've dealt with yada yada before, like those bills that keep going up and up for no reason at all. Or when budget airlines promise a cheap fare, but then charge you for every little thing until you realize you're paying more than you would have somewhere else. And yes, it is possible to outsmart yada yada, like triple checking airline deals to make sure all you need is already included, but you don't take yada yada in life. So don't take yada yada from your wireless provider. Metro by T-Mobile has no contracts, no credit checks, no surprises, and nada yada yada. Stop by one of over 6,000 Metro stores nationwide. When you get a new car or a new home, your first reaction might be to say things like, oh yeah, or I can't believe it, or booyah. But what you really want to say is the one thing that can get you the help you need. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. State Farm is there with the coverage you need for your car, your home, and even boats, motorcycles, RVs, and other things that matter to you. With a State Farm agent, you know someone is there to help you choose the coverage you need. With so many coverage options, it feels good knowing you can find what fits for you. And when you need ways to get help, State Farm gives you options there too. Too. in person or on the phone with your local agent or on statefarm.com where their award-winning app State Farm lets you do things your way. So when you need help protecting the things that matter most, remember to say, like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. And when I reflect on and I talk about in the book building echo versus building complex, 
complex, it wasn't even by design, but complex media, because of the financial crisis in, you know, 08, 09, uh, I had to reorganize how I was financing complex. And in that effort to reorganize is really the first time in my professional career where I learned about institutional investors and really giving up equity. Because prior to that, I was an equity hoarder. Everything was like, all right, partner, 50-50. <laughs> yeah, yeah, me and you, 50-50. And, you know, me, you, Marcy, okay, 50-50-50, right? So there's some good that comes with that. It's a little mom and pop and folksy. But, you know, I prescribe now to distributing the risk, distributing the upside, and not being so romantic uh, and stubborn-headed about uh, just the numbers and, and, and where you sit in a cap table. I do believe that you should, you know, if there's certain aspects of your trade that you need to control and you have evidence that you're, you're, you, you, you are unique to control them and control those aspects. then I prescribe to, you know, inventors, creators, entrepreneurs, whatever, uh, startups, um, founders that they protect those, uh, controls, not necessarily through their equity position, but rather through voting rights and other, you know, there's other means to create uh, those protections so that you have, quote, control. In Echo, we didn't think that way. It was like I said, 50-50-50. And uh, like I said, it, it was probably one part cuts both ways. It, it served us in making us unique to the market. Hey, these kids are just, they look different. They act different. They think different. They, everything's different. It made us kind of folksy in that way. But in some regard, it always made us um, dangerously close to just losing it all. So tell me, what's been the biggest fear over the last 20 years that you've had? I think the biggest anxiety uh, or fear that I've dealt with, and I think this isn't unique to me, and that's why like, the story is, is interesting, okay? but it's really not about a memoir. right? It's really more about a framework for people to understand that the the notion of fear relative to their discovery of their quote unique voice, as I say in the book, where our unique voice is action minus fear divided by the function of self. You know how selfish or selfless you are. Fear is an a an essential component of establishing an authentic experience, product, service, expression. Right and. Uh, I don't think I'm unique in having a fear. And I think that the fear that I had, and as the book frames, and it's it's kind of um, maybe one part because I'm an artist, is the kind of uh, what and how will my peers accept the decision I'm going to. Mm. Okay? And a universal fear. It's a universal fear that is designed by one's human and emotional way of um, thinking that they're, you know, building ivory towers for themselves. You know, these ivory towers, these institutions we create are really built on the basis of a, a premise that, you know, we're right and that we know better because we have evidence and therefore we get into these zones of comfort, right? And we become very, very comfortable. Uh, and the comfort is because you're certain that the way you're doing it, it's the right way, right? Uh, And you don't want to move out of that comfort and you're afraid to. Sometimes you're afraid because of the gatekeeper or that 
quote, thought leader, influencer is going to roll their eyes, is going to say no, is going to object. And you, you assign so much power to these kind of outside forces. And I've seen it as a pattern where I, I have been slightly kind of shut in and antisocial. And I'm my own worst enemy in that it's like, oh, no, you know, I don't think I could do it. And you kind of get in your own head. And I think that has consistently, if I look at the pattern of a catalyst to a mistake that I've made, it's typically been from the hubris that's created to preserve the comfort, you know, so that you don't really address it in an honest fashion and call it what it is, which is you're afraid. So how, how does someone learn to leverage that fear then to you talk about, you know, the fear of fire and you in the book and learning how to like create something great around this fire. So how does someone, an entrepreneur, maybe who's scared about putting something out there, a new product, raising money, whatever it may be, putting their brand out there and getting criticized and hated on, how does someone learn to leverage that fear and maybe not overcome it, but maybe learn to feel the fear and do yeah, it anyways. The fear is there by design, right? Like it's in our, it's in, it's built into our nerves. It's right. like in our fingertips. Like you cannot, you know, you cannot be fearless. To be fearless, you are dead. I don't care if you're like, you know, Macho Man Randy Savage with like a M16. Like you're still afraid. Okay, so uh, I think that's a fallacy. And I think uh, there is a archetype that's been painted in the kind of, you know, where entrepreneurs, the new black, you know, it's fashionable to like kind of paint this image of an entrepreneur who's just so relentlessly ambitious that he exhibits no fear. Like, you know, Mark Zuckerberg staring down the no, the, the rifle of a lawsuit in, you know, the Facebook movie. Um, you know, I think that's a, a, a load of shit. And, and I think it's a fallacy for us to kind of, you know, believe that the, those people in those instances didn't have stage fright. Of course they did. So you can't begrudge it. I think the way you harness it is to reorganize your expectations and, right, and to understand that your job actually, right, is not to, you know, uh, you know, just meet the milestones, check a box you know, beat the quarter, check a box, you know, stay on plan, check a box, you know, it's, it's about coming to terms with the fact that failure, right, is your job. And success is merely the measure of the learnings that you accrue over small incremental steps of failure, right? Like a series of small events that are small failures, right? And, and being able to extract out from that, why? And managing your expectations, it's like, yo, that's the natural order, man. Like, you people forget how they learn how to ride a bike. Failing. They, they, they fail. They fed up, man. It was scary as Okay? <laughs> it was scary, man. Like, go, like, you know, fall, like, walking? Are you kidding me? You know how scary it is to walk, you know, and like that time, like that, you know, I, I've seen it. I now appreciate it, obviously, more. You reconnect once you have kids, but you see, you see it in your own kids when they go from crawl to walk, and that's the natural order. So the organization has to learn to tolerate that, frame its expectations around 
arriving at the vicinity of success, at the vicinity, rather than this finite definition of what the finish line looks like. It's a number, it's a metric, how many f**ks, how many friends, how many followers, how much money, how many wins. Like we try to organize things in that fashion and that's not really intellectually honest with like nature and the nature and nurture of success, right? It's just really not really how it really happens. And we don't have those expectations when we're like playing in sports and learning the game, but somehow with um, business and creation, uh, it's like, oh my God, I'm taking a risk. I could lose everything. You know, well, then don't bet everything. <laughs> right. Okay. Like, you know, like rather than designing a future, and I talk about this in the, in the book uh, towards the end. I frame the definition of future because that's an essential part to the kind of the imagine factor, uh, which again is a, 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 a tenant of, of, you know, what it takes to be genuinely authentic is one's ability to kind of overcome your nostalgia. You do that by framing your future, but you have to, let's, we have to define future, a vision of the future. Like you need not design a future that's like George Jetson flying cars. Okay. All right, like we're we're taught to do that because we look at like, oh God, I want to be like Steve Jobs. I want to make touchscreen phones that like you know allow for streaming video. And it, no, 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 that was an iterative, you know, over you know, starting a company, being fired by your own company, being bought back on the on the you know the the of your ass about to shit the bed, you know, um, a pre iPod. Like that was a long journey. Those were incremental frameworks for future. Your future, you know, how about the future that's like 30 minutes from now? Do you have a good vision for what that is? You're so busy planning and setting your expectations to this, you know, watermark or this kind of destination on your GPS of uh, future. And it looks so glorious and the lights behind the building and it's just, man, cinematic. It looks like a Spielberg scene. You know what I mean? And you know what? Like, it, it's not like you don't, you build to that. You iterate to that. And rather than being consumed with that, and then your expectations are always bound to that vision. So you're always setting yourself up to just be massively disappointed, right? I mean, think about like, as a, for instance, like Justin Timberlake, right? Justin Timberlake today is viewed as like, oh, he's such an influential guy in music. And like, he's, you know, like, and he is, I'm not trying to be, uh, I'm not trying to be snarky, but like the dude is, you know, he's made some massive records, but like, yo, go Google image, Justin Timberlake and Lou Pearlman. You know what I mean? That, <laughs> like, it, like, it was an iterative journey and right. people in the music community were really just begrudged his music you know hardcore kind of you know pop r&b like thought leaders look down their nose at justin as like a fugazi you know and then you know he does the video music video uh, music award vanguard award he wins that lifetime thing this last uh, vmas and he just crushes and he basically suns everyone he's like look <laughs> 20 years mother yeah, yeah it's been yeah, a long yeah. time in the making 
Yeah. Okay. You just watched it in 20 minutes. And how did you do all that in 20 minutes? Because I lived it in 37 years or whatever. How old he is. Right. Right. It's like the, the Picasso story. Um, you know, it's a great anecdote where a woman comes up to Picasso and she's like, Mr. Picasso, will you autograph this napkin for me? So Picasso takes the napkin and he signs his name just as Picasso can, just flourishes and just looks like it just, you know, oozes off this marker. And then he starts to draw. And he's drawing like an illustration of one of his classic nude women, right? And the woman is just like, oh, she's gushing. He hands it back to her. He says, that'll be $10,000. Wow. She says, $10,000? I just wanted an autograph. He says, she says, it only took five minutes. He says, I know it only took five minutes, but it took me my whole life to learn how to do it. Mm. Okay, so the point is, is, it, you know, expectations, you know, uh, framing your expectations in more modest increments will help you manage your fear and harness it. And if you think you're going to be like loved and it's going to be warm and fuzzy and kumbaya, like, you know what, go be a peace worker. Okay. If you're trying to invent some next or trying to frame your product or service to the world, um, uh, in a way where you're, you want to be loved like Oprah, like good luck, you know, good luck with that. Right. You know, cause not even Oprah is loved like Oprah. Okay. So it's a fallacy that you're not going to have people begrudge you, gatekeepers question you. Um, and you have to learn that, uh, you know what, being somewhat selfish and framing your unique voice and expressing an authentic product service you know uh um experience instance will typically lead to you know some people liking it and some people begrudging it you know but so now you have a better picture of who your audience is not right but if you want to do some big things you're gonna have some haters you're gonna have haters man haters is like you're doing something all right now if it's authentic to your core you know, I talk about it in the book, like your core values, really, like your core deep guts to the skin brand. If, if as long as your creative expression and your intent is authentic deeply and bound to your values, like in the way that you would define your values to a two-year-old or to an 82-year-old, then you're okay. If you're being irreverent just for irreverency's sake, just to kind of, you know, inflame an audience and create you know, the tension of haters, you know, and it's not true to who you are, right? Then, you know, you're, you're, you're not being authentic. It's very simple. Interesting. Now I, uh, in your book, you talk about mentors and I am a big believer in mentors, coaches, uh, in order to help accelerate your learning curve and kind of get you to that success you want or to that level you want much faster. Now, can you talk about maybe one of your early on mentors or, um, and also can you tell me, would you be where you are today without having a mentor? Well, my experience with mentors is not as organized, uh, as you know, maybe in how you're defining it in that 
some people have the governance in their life or had learned the framework framework early enough to know that to aspire or seek, quote, a mentor, and they call them that by name. I don't know that I had that uh, education or that literacy to the high concept of what a, a mentor is. Mm-hmm. I think what's more important is to allow yourself to be mentored, right? Meaning allow yourself to be open uh, and know that school comes to you. You don't go to school. Mm. When you have that disposition, you learn in the most, you know, passive ways like osmosis. So some of my greatest learning experiences where I've quote been mentored have been through my ability to kind of my, my wantedness, a deep wantedness to want to solve for my problem. Right. So, so you, you're able to extrapolate an education from the most disparate of places, Mm. you know, and that's why like, you know, what you do with your work and you, you, yeah, you're, you're creating these great quote entertainment products and, but like, yo, there's a lot of people can learn by just keeping up with your podcast. Right. Right. Okay. So in some ways that like you can't, because of the way that people organize a learning experience in a classroom, it, you, it doesn't have the same impact, the same level of intimacy. So someone hopefully right now is listening to this and extracting something and being like, oh, shit, yeah, I just got to pay attention more. I got to you find that if the wantedness is there, you can be mentored. And because some people are stubborn about that, you know, like especially when you're young, you know, like I was reflecting, someone asked me the other day. What would like the the young Mark Echo, the 16-year-old, angry, you know, slightly uncomfortable in his skin, kid in his garage painting sweatshirts, say about the 41-year-old Mark Echo shipping a book, you know, that's teaching someone how to sell without selling out, right? And I said to be, you know, if I'm being completely intellectually honest, I think what the young Mark Echo would probably almost probably would have a default disposition to dismiss him because he sounds kind of preachy, like a teacher, Mm. you know? So I reflect on, you know, my openness at that time. I don't know if it's a cultural thing, if it's a part of being, you know, just young, maybe it was a emotional intelligence thing, uh, maybe a, a, a capacity thing, maybe it was a fashion thing, but I'd almost look at the old Mark Echo probably and be like, oh, man, that old dude's trying to like, he's trying to act like he knows something, you know? And, uh, you know, I think that's that, that there is that, ten- that tension between the teacher and the student that's, I mean, goes back all the way to, you know, Socrates teaching Homer and, uh, I mean, Plato, rather, and then Plato teaching Aristotle and Aristotle saying, yo, Plato, you're a artist. I, what you're saying is and like resenting what effectively Socrates taught, right? There's always that tension of like begrudging, having a, a healthy contempt for your teacher. But I think what I was apt to do was find mentors in really disparate places. And I talk about these kind of unlikely Yodas that don't necessarily look or dress the part. They're not professorial. Mm. They might be dropouts, Okay, and they didn't necessarily drop out. They dropped in somewhere else because they weren't interested in the conventional way. 
So like I talk about Ken from Tahoe, who stoner Ken, who had a clothing company called Eighth Day, taught me how to do color separations in, you know, early Photoshop programs, pre quote layers. Now I don't want to get like all geeked out, but (laughs) he saved me thousands and thousands of dollars per t-shirt by teaching me something that, you know, they weren't teaching in a college. Like there was no place to find out how to like, so if you want to learn it, it's there to be learned. You have to know where to glean the knowledge from and, you you know, ultimately be grateful for those instances of ment- uh, of those mentoring moments. I think this kind of framework of like, oh, I'm going to meet my mentor on Thursday at 3 p.m. We, we meet w- once a month or once every two weeks. You know, I, I haven't personally experienced that in my life. Right. In that kind of fashion. But I have had mentors that I've been able to parrot to or through emulation or through inquiry and a kind of call response, even in these short wind sprint instances have had massive impact on me because I wanted to and needed to learn. You were seeking it. I was, I was open, man. It was open. You know, I was open and I wasn't discriminating where it was coming from. Mm. And I think we, it speaks to this kind of notion of labels this kind of the, the, this, this taxonomy that we assign and project onto others that we want to organize each other by the way we look, our interests, whatever, our labels. So I'm guilty of it. We're all guilty of that. We're all guilty of projecting. But I have to say that if I were to line up the cast of characters in my life who taught me and mentored me, man, it looks like a motley bunch of mother. I'm telling you, man, it looks like the lineup from Usual Suspects. (laughs) It's crazy, right? King Fade from the Shirt Kings, Stoner Ken, Dean Calazzi from, you know, Rutgers College of Pharmacy. How would Dean Calazzi have been a mentor? I mean, how does that happen? I mean, the dude is the guy that's the gatekeeper for the very thing I disdained, which was pharmacy school. And he gave me some of the best academic advice in my career. How lucky in life was I for that? George Lucas, just from the outside, studying him, studying the framework of how he organized this tapestry of a branded narrative in this world and how he used licensing to kind of create, you know, financial independence. And people begrudged him and the, 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 the kind of elite of Hollywood rolled their eyes and looked down their nose at him being a whore about making money when all he was doing was building this massive church of independence. Mm. Okay? so like. I learned from more from studying Lucas than I did Calvin Klein, right? So it's it's kind of interesting in in for for me in my career. I love it. What's um what's your infinite truth? Oh, infinite truth isn't there's no finite, you know, um single answer. I mean the, the you know the 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 formula in the book you're talking about like how I frame it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, the infinite truth is the notion of two, two different, you know, components, like what you do and what you say, right. And, and it's, it's an exercise. It's, it's, it's very, it's a very simple, really concept in that, you know, what you do has to be greater than, you know, what you say. You talk about, yeah. Right. So, you know, the, you know, to keep the quotient in a positive 
um, you know, uh, uh, um, number, you know, infinite truth is greater than or equal to what you do divided by what you say. So you have to over deliver on what you say. Okay. So we are so consumed in a world of social media and kind of feeding the, the, the vomitorium pipe of talking. And we, and we, 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 we consume our media with these kind of endless talking heads and pundits who so are so emphatic that it almost feels like what they are saying is action, but it's not, they're just talking. Right. Okay. So, you know, the actually emphasis on execution is really at the heart of this formula. It's, you know, under promise over deliver Mm. the old, you know, adage, right? So what you do right? Divided by what you say. If, if you're disproportionately saying more, right? And you're, you know, dividing, uh, you, you know, uh, and, and it becomes a fraction versus a whole number, you're, the likeliness of your infinite truth being truthful is, you know, is not there. You want to always have the, the quotient of what you do greater than, right? And larger than what you say. And I think, you know, uh, infinite truth is a commitment to just organize your, your speech and your promises in a fashion that you can confidently overachieve. Mm. And I could tell you that when people plan in their business plans and they say, oh, we comp 12% this year, we're up, let's aim for 20 for next year, they get indulged by the the momentum or this versus like saying you know what no let's crush a number that we know we can crush mm. right and you you frame the organization is working more towards a truth than a lie or the potential of a lie because that's what ends up happening okay like you were just being intellectually dishonest when you go when you plan that 12 to 20 and you only end up at 15 when you should have planned at 14 and a half or something. Was it better to, uh, you know, set the bar high and, and miss the mark? No. Or is it better to set it low, a low standard and always reach it? I, I don't think it's about low or high. I think it's about intellectually honest. Mm. I think it's about truthful. It's about being truthful about the composition of your skill sets, your, your organization skill sets, your, you know, your um, collaborators, and rather designing into a number that envisions a, quote, perfect team, right? Uh, I, I don't think it's setting, quote, the bar low. I think it's setting the bar to an intellectually honest place. Mm. One, uh, I'm very proud at Complex, you know, Every single quarter, we crush our numbers. And there are people on the board, and there are people within the sales team that are like, oh, you're aiming too low. And they, but you know what? It keeps the energy uh, and the, uh, um, the appreciation for what we do. Um, uh, it frames it in a way that, that flies at a higher elevation than like lucky, right? And it, 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 there's just a, there's a rigor that comes with that and an honesty that comes with that. And then we don't do it to be like, oh, we're going to, 
we're going to frame this so we could game our bonuses. That, no, that's, that's ridiculous. You want to, you know, uh, um, yeah, I think you want to frame the, uh, um, the bar and position the bar uh, at a place that's intellectually honest. And I think a lot of people might hear that and be like, oh, aim low. <laughs> yeah, all right. Well, I kind of, I kind of like your theory on that, just because you're you're almost always coming out on a win and building momentum and building uh, this, you know, team bonding, team, you know, whatever it may be, momentum, I guess, that is inspirational as opposed to beating each other up or pointing fingers or taking on all this blame or guilt that you didn't reach your goal. Yeah, and and I think that the culture is to try to drive towards, you know often numbers that are just a bunch of people talking and defining success by finite numbers that might not be intellectually honest to one's capacity and the conditions in the market. And I don't think there's anything wrong with being, you know, intellectually truthful. And that doesn't mean aim low. I've built, like, we just, we just raised $25 million at Complex. You know, we were crushing it. And we did, you know, we're, you know, by the time this thing goes live, we'll probably have our first month. We do a billion page views, a billion page views in one month. Okay. Mm. So we're not aiming low. We're just aiming at a pace and at, in a fashion that is, you know, within, we think the achievement gap of our team and their skill set. Cause we, we are honest that maybe we're, we're weak over here or, or, we're, we're honest about our own skill sets, right? You, you know, as executives. So, but that doesn't mean that you, you, you know, you, you, you're, you know, have a bad self image. Right. Right. It's a billion page views. That's pretty insane. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> Congrats on that. <laughs> Side note. Um, awesome. Yeah, you could, yeah. The cross the network and the hundred and, you know, 20 plus sites and, you know, the growth of video and it's, it's just been an, an amazing journey. And, you know, frankly, it's funny. We're at a place where now we talk about it. It's like we need to change the metric for our or the formula that, that deems goals and, and our milestones to kind of create better qualitative results rather than just quantitative. Mm. And so we're right in the midst of designing these new kind of, quote, algorithms, if you will, for our internal teams to, to incent the edit team, the sales, everyone to drive more qualitatively to success. Because in a world where, you know, the digital media space and, and really just media broadly, you know, the notion of quote ratings, you know, but I want ratings with like the right heat on those jets. You know what I mean? Like, I don't want it like just gaming the system. Right. I, I, I'm not into gaming the ratings and, you know, not that I'm implying that we game the ratings. I just think that we don't have protections in the milestone schedule and the goal schedule that clearly articulates and inserts something that you cannot quantify by just like assigning numbers to it. Right. So we have these new measures that we're deploying it's going to be interesting to see uh, going into 14 uh, the impact uh, 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 with the qualitative piece of the business, which is really 
I think, essential to, to what we've done as a brand. Mm, interesting. Well, I've got a bunch of questions left, but I really want people to get the book on label because uh, specifically to learn about your marketing genius and what you've created in sense of memorable marketing and publicity. You talk about some of that in the book. So I want people to go, and sp- instead of you spilling all the beans there, I want people to go get the book. It's at, If you can go to unlabeled.me. Uh, the website's an amazing video you have on there. Congrats on that, by the way. It's unreal. Thank you. Yeah. And the whole site is super interactive and, and unreal looking. So unlabel.me, check it out. You're selling the book everywhere, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, pretty much every bookstore you can get it at. Go get the book. And I'm going to leave you with one last question. Yes. What I ask everyone. And that is, what is your definition of greatness? Oh, man. Um I don't know. I, I, I don't, I think not to like evade your question, <laughs> but, um, you know, I think, uh, that words are, you know, often, um, and I love words. I love etymology and, um, but words kind of sometimes suffer from being defined by other words. Mm. And that was the motive to the slightly cryptic, you know, formula of authenticity. I was trying to take the and put a philosophical framework together of like components of, of authenticity. And I would probably presume that greatness, if I were to, you know, contemplate greatness, I would challenge that it's not so easily defined. Um, I do think that greatness in a common thing that I see amongst the great um, ideas, uh, innovations, thinkers, teachers, um, experiences, is that there is a certain degree of madness that drives the creation. And uh, I, I mean, that's more of an observation. I don't think it defines greatness. I think obviously the greatness is like what, you know, what the outcome is. But I do find that there is this pattern amongst greatness and and in the pursuit of greatness that uh, almost breeds and uh, seeks a certain level of mania and madness to drive the uh, creation. And um, I don't think greatness is merely measured by numbers. I can tell you that. I can tell you what it's not. I don't think greatness is because you have the most valuable company or the, you know, you're the richest or you're the most popular, you know, by way of numbers quantitatively that that necessarily is, is great. And I also think history um, and time are, uh, I think probably on the curve of the measure of greatness somewhere, you know, they are essential probably components to be able to assign what greatness really is, because I think really greatness sustains, you know, if it's an idea, poem, um, a product that isn't even in existence anymore, the, the, the mere memory of it manages to, um, you know, give the goosies and get you excited and exhilarated. I think, that the measure being able to stand and withhold, um, you know, uh, the, the brutality of time, uh, I think is a great 
measure of, of if in fact something's great or not. Right. So, you know, I don't, I'm not trying to like be overly intellectual or, <laughs> or, or evade the question. I don't have like something that'll necessarily tweet well. <laughs> no, it's all good. I think, I think you, greatness I think you hit it. Tweeted. There's the tweet. What'd you say? I said greatness can't be tweeted. Nozia, <laughs> greatness. Is, I, I love it. You know, as, I don't care how hard you try, greatness cannot be uh, summarized in a tweet. <laughs> That's a good enough answer for me. Mark, I appreciate it, man. Where uh, where can we find you online besides unlabeled.me? Uh, I'm at Mark Echo uh, on Twitter, M-A-R-C-E-C-K-O. And uh, check me out. Awesome, man. Yeah, man. I appreciate it, brother. It's been, uh, it's been fun. And uh, I know people are going to love this one. So make sure to check out, uh, Mark out. At Mark Echo on Twitter. I know you're on Instagram as well. I just started yeah, following you there. Being, yeah, it's at being Mark Echo on Instagram. Yeah, at the Mark Echo on Instagram. No, it's, no, it's uh, being. Oh, being. being. Yeah, being. Okay. B-E-I-N-G. Like being John Malkovich. Being Mark Echo. Got yes, this. Sir. And uh, also, go get the book. I know uh, all the School of Greatness people love to buy the books from our guests on here. So make sure to go grab a copy of Unlabel. And uh, shoot a tweet out to Mark and let you let him know what you think of the book or what yeah man what you like about it. So yeah, I, know, I, I know he'll appreciate that. I will. I definitely will. I appreciate you, Lewis. I appreciate this opportunity to share it. My pleasure, man. And uh, thanks for coming on, bro. We'll talk Thank to you, you soon. Peace. Now it's time to bring in the master. And I hope you guys enjoyed this very special interview with Mr. Mark Echo. Super powerful guy, very wise, and uh, some amazing stories as well. Make sure to check out the show notes at schoolofgreatness.com. And also go check out the book over on Amazon. We'll have all the links on the show notes at schoolofgreatness.com. I appreciate all of you guys' feedback. I keep getting so many comments, emails, messages online via social media, pictures uploaded to Instagram of where you guys are listening to this. And I'll tell you what, those comments are huge for me. It's the reason I create this podcast is to knowing that it leaves an impact and a positive impact in your business, in your life, in your relationships, in your health, and in everything. So please keep sending me feedback on how I can make the show better, what type of guests you would like me to bring on, and just other feedback and tips that you have for me. I'm super appreciative for every email and message that I get. So again, thanks for that. With that, guys, thanks again so much for tuning in. Stay tuned to the next episode. I've got some big names coming up soon, some important information, some amazing stories, some incredible inspiration. So I appreciate all of you so very much. And you know what time it is. It's time to go out there and do something great.
You seek the key, but first you must learn the ways of precision, craft, and performance with Acura's all-electric ZDX. With a premium bang and a Lufsen sound system up to a 313-mile range and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is their most powerful SUV yet. Unlock the energy when you visit Acura.com to order yours today. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. And I've learned the hard way that constantly holding on to your emotions and repeatedly choosing to not talk about your feelings will only make you feel worse and worse. And up until about 10 or 11 years ago, I was afraid to talk about my trauma that I experienced. And I know we all carry around different stressors, big and small. And when we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. But therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. And if you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to fit your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Lewis today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash L-E-W-I-S.